In preparing this talk, I asked my children if I have ever shouted at them, to which they said yes. And then I thought, no, I need to qualify this a bit more. Have I ever shouted at you to stop you doing something dangerous? Yes, Toby said he could remember a time when he kicked a football into the road and there was traffic coming, and I shouted. Now, it's that kind of a shout with which we need to approach this passage. You know the kind of shout you hear as a friend stumbles into the road and you go, ah, because there's traffic coming. That kind of shout. Or a toddler reaches up to pull a saucepan handle off a stove. That kind of, no, that's harsh but clear shout. And that shout comes from a place not of anger, but actually of love and warning, that kind of warning shout. Because this passage that we're about to read is a bit of a harsh shout, but we need to understand that it's that kind of harsh shout that comes from a place of love of warning that something is wrong, that there's danger that someone needs to be protected from. So with that in mind, Jesus is speaking to the church at Laodicea. And um, we know that it's Jesus. If we look at verse 14 in our passage, it tells us these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of creation. This is Jesus. Jesus is the Amen. He's the final word. He's the one who rules. He was there in the beginning when creation was formed. He's there at the end. This is Jesus speaking to the church. And you know what Jesus says to them? He says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And the word spit is more like the word vomit. You are so disgusting to me that I'm going to puke you out of my mouth. Pretty harsh. Does that sound like the Jesus you heard about in Sunday school? Possibly not. But if you can remember back to that image that shout you might shout out when a colleague is about to tip tea over really important paperwork that you need for a business deal. And you go, ah! It's that kind of shout. And Jesus shouts at his church because he loves them. And we see this back, if you look in verse 19, who does God discipline and rebuke? Those whom he loves. So what is so disgusting about this church that he's going to puke them out of his mouth? Well, verse 15 and 16 tell us that God sees the deeds of this church and he hates the fact that they are lukewarm. Now, in Laodicea, it was a city that was rich and um, a lovely city in many ways, but it didn't have its own water supply. There was a city um, down the road called Colossus, which did have beautiful, cool, refreshing, cold water. And there was a city up the road from them, Hierapolis, that had lovely hot springs. But Laodicea had neither. It had a sort of tepid, uh, disgusting-tasting water. 
And so as this church heard these words, they would have rung bells. Jesus is drawing an analogy for them. But what is Jesus talking about? Because he's not actually talking about their water supply. He's talking about their spiritual state. And he's saying, spiritually, you are lukewarm. You're neither cold nor hot. Well, what is spiritual lukewarmness? And I had a little look in a few commentaries and listened to a couple of other people on this, and I thought Rico Tice said it best. He said that spiritual lukewarmness is like contented uselessness. Contented uselessness. It's like, if you were, that they were sort of Sunday-only Christians, they, they did the flower rotor, or they cleaned the brass, or they turned up on time sometimes to do something. They did kind of outward little bits of Christianity, but they hadn't taken Jesus right into their hearts. It's like they kind of knew that Jesus died on the cross, taking their mess away, that God sacrificed his son so that they could be sons and daughters of the king. They knew this stuff in their head. They knew in their head that one day everyone would stand before the judgment of God, and yet none of that was making any difference to how they actually were. And so they were contented that they had the knowledge of the good news and yet at the same time were utterly useless because none of that knowledge was trickling down into actual behaviour. This church in Laodicea was just going through the motions. They thought that they were rich and that they had acquired wealth, not needing a thing, it says in the Bible. But God says, what does God say of them in verse 17, 18? He says this, you're so deluded. You're not wealthy and not in need. You're actually wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What's gone wrong for them is that they've become self-reliant. They've become just like the people in their city, whose self-sufficiency has led them away from a dependent relationship upon God. I think today here in London, there are tons of reasons why people don't follow God, loads of different reasons why. But, but one of them is the hindrance that a decent pocket full of money brings. You see, when we've got money, when we go to the bank and um, it's looking good, and uh, I know the feeling when it's not looking good, but if it's looking good, you can kind of go, brilliant, I can cope. I can sort all my problems. Anything that comes my way, I will just deal with because I can. I've got the ability, I've got the power to through the wealth that I have. And somehow, this self-reliance that everybody else is living with has crept into the church. And it's that that disgusts Jesus. You see, what happens when we become self-reliant is that we turn from Christ. We stop needing Jesus. We think we don't need 
Jesus. And as this church in Laodicea becomes a church that don't think they need Jesus, they stop living out Jesus' ways. And what's one of the biggest barriers to people coming to know Jesus so often? It's the church that's failed to live out Jesus' ways. And that is why Jesus is being harsh with them. Now, um, I need to qualify here that wealth is a wonderful thing. There are many godly men and women who've been wealthy and down the ages have taken that wealth and they've brought it back to God and they've surrendered it to God and said, let it be used for good. And it's an amazing thing. And God is not anti-people being wealthy. That wealthiness is a brilliant thing. It's all about this issue of our reliance and our surrender to Jesus. And I know that I'm tempted into this sin of thinking at times, oh my goodness, if I had this, then I would be secure. It would make me more free to then live for God. But what happens in that is that I'm putting my reliance on stuff, on money, on wealth, instead of on Jesus. And it's just a dangerous little shift that happens as we become self-reliant. We stop spending time with him. Back in um, Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, Moses uh, is with the people of God and they're about to enter the land that they've been given. And in chapter 8, verse 17 of Deuteronomy, it says this, You may say to yourselves, people, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. If you're wealthy, you're wealthy because God has given you the ability to produce wealth. You were born at the right time, into the right family. You had the right education, the right opportunities. You've worked hard. Sure, of course you have. But all of that has been given to you as a grace from God. And if God's people also act like the world and start saying, no, it's just because of me, then what creeps in is a distancing of ourselves with God himself, and we become lukewarm. And you see, there's no hiding with Jesus because Jesus knows what we do with our diaries. He knows what we do with our checkbooks. He knows corporately and individually what we're up to. And because he loves us so much, he shouts at us. And this passage is honestly, it's a passage of love to his church. He loves you so much that he doesn't want you to miss out on the true treasure of real relationship with Jesus Christ because it is gold. It is worth more than anything that this life will give you. And so he says, he says, come to me for real gold. And in a city that was known for its wealth, come to me for gold. In a city that was known for producing special linen, Jesus says, come to me and I will clothe you perfectly. In a city that was famous for producing a special ointment for eyes, Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you salve for your eyes. 
Jesus gently here is calling the church back to him to remember what they really gain in relationship with him that he purifies them of all the mess in their lives and allows them to enter eternal life. And the problem for us today is that it's really hard to remember that because we're busy with what's just before us in this world now. And I know I've been guilty of that this week. We get busy with what's just before us. And we forget this calling into an eternity. And it's beautiful the way the passage ends in verse 20 and 21. It's beautiful imagery. We get Jesus standing, knocking at the door. Have a look at verse 20. He's knocking at the door gently. Jesus never forces his way in. He just stands and knocks. The God of the universe who has the almighty power and could do anything does not require you or I to be robotic kind of minions rather he knocks at our door and just says I'm here if you want to let me in I'm here I'm knocking at the door and then what happens when you open the door to Jesus have you looked at the next bit it's beautiful imagery he says we'll eat together And the imagery is of that kind of, you know, late night evening supper party where you're just totally relaxed. It's leisurely. It's the end of the day. The work has been done. The rest and the play is here. It's that kind of eating. Come and eat like that with me, says Jesus. I ain't here to make your life boring or terrible or rigorous or or dull. I'm here to invite you to leisurely life in order all its fullness. Come eat with me. And then he says, to those who persevere, who endure the course of this life with all its ups and downs, I will invite you into eternity to sit on the throne with me. There's a lovely story of two children learning to play the piano and um, their siblings in the house, and they've got piano lessons. And one of the siblings, the first one, kind of wants to play the piano and has a go at it, but can't really be bothered to follow the teacher's instructions, to practice what seems like boring scales. They just want to have a go at plonking around, enjoy it, and that's that. The second child, however, does take a bit of time to follow the teacher's instructions. They go through some of the enduring that needs to happen to learn the scales properly. Fast forward five years. The first child isn't playing the piano at all. The second child is now playing it with the most beautiful freedom. Having been through the process, they can now twinkle away. They can add their own bits in. They know how to compose. They've learned how it works. And the sound that's coming out is now beautiful and clear. To some extent in the Christian life, there is this calling to this endurance and discipline that we're called to. And to those that do, you're invited to sit on the throne of God. 
How amazing is that, that our Christian faith says that the God of the universe lets you and I come and sit on his throne and rule with him? I mean, is that just not mind-blowing? What other faith or or worldview has that idea in it that you and I are invited to sit with God on his throne that the almighty the everlasting to which we should just bow our knees in awe of says I love you so much endure to the end and come and sit on the throne you're going to get to rule with me to create with me for all eternity isn't that amazing And so may you be encouraged today as you endure with Jesus. For those like me who this week, I need to hear something of the harsh challenge of this. Know that it comes because God loves you. But hear it, for we don't want to be lukewarm. God loves you. May you remember where you're headed. It's to an eternity with him. He loves you. Let him in. Let him be at the centre. And as the summer approaches, and maybe we get to enjoy some leisurely evenings, if you commute, maybe your commute is less busy as the children are no longer on the tube and on the roads, um, as maybe some of us have the privilege of taking some holiday time. Let's consciously, as a church, individually and corporately, choose to make sure we spend some time with precious Jesus, bringing him back into the centre. Because our self-reliance draws us away from bothering to spend time with him. Let's read his word and spend a little time with him. And be blessed as you endure in doing so, knowing where you are headed to eternity with him. Amen.